Welcome to episode 157 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abul Samich from Guidehouse Insights. I'm Rebecca Linlin from Rebecca Drives. And Dan is off actually trying to make a living today, so he's unavailable to join us. Uh, he's got some, some projects that he's running up against the deadline on, so it's just the two of us today. So, Rebecca, what have you been driving? So, I have been driving the 2021 Kia Seltos. It's kind of this small, almost SUV. They, they market it as an SUV, but it's actually a size of vehicle that I really like. You can fit four comfortably in it, five if you're, you know, running errands or going to lunch or something when we are allowed to go to lunch again with, your, with our <laughs> colleagues. Uh, and, you know, it has a nice uh, ground clearance, you know, nothing crazy. I just, I'm really fond of this size of vehicle. I think it's practical for a lot of households. So the, the Kia Seltos, the, it starts at $21,990. they have got about $1,120 of destination charge on it. It's interesting because the, the Mulroney that came with my media car didn't match my experience. And it started from the very beginning when I couldn't get the door open with the supposedly standard keyless entry. So this car didn't have keyless entry. It didn't have um, push button start. It didn't have automatic air. And it's funny because I get so used to those things. And I think we get so used to those things. We're spoiled. That very, very spoiled. But I will say for, and, and I guess I apply this mostly to women, but you know, when I drop my key in my handbag and I don't even think about it, but, you know, I do, I mean, my own car, Coco doesn't have keyless entry. And I will say from a safety standpoint, like when I got home late from airports, you know, walking to my car, it is important. I think particularly for women that you do invest in keyless entry when you're shopping for a car, whether it's used or new, it doesn't matter. The idea that you're not fumbling for your car keys as you're walking up to a car, really in any situation, I think is important. And I think that that's one thing that, you know, if a lot of people, you know, as we've talked about before, cars are 10, 11 years old. You may not realize, you know, if you've never had keyless entry, you don't realize how convenient it can be. But for me, it was also a safety issue of not being distracted when you're walking up to your car, you know, being able to just go up, get in and lock the doors right away. There's just that feeling of, you know, it's, it's one less thing to distract you from getting into your car safely. Mm -hmm. So I will tell, you know, and particularly the women out there that I would look at keyless entry as something that is, I would consider essential in when you're shopping for a new or, or gently used car. And the other thing that I'm very, very spoiled because I love auto air and it's, it seems to be still misunderstood. So auto air is you know, you can just set it and forget it. And I love that. So my preferred temperature is 70 degrees. And I, you know, the good systems don't blast you with, with super hot air in the summer and freezing cold air in the winter. It will warm up in a separate location you know, within the engine and then feed start feeding more appropriately temperatured air into your cabin. But I like the fact that you can just set it, forget it, and it's one less thing to worry about. So again, not having it was um, was something that 
you know, I had to kind of fumble with it and get used to it. This didn't even have the temperature dial. I mean, it only had a dial. It didn't have the actual specific temperature. So, so just from blue to red. Yeah, exactly. From <clears throat> blue to red. Right. So it was really old school, which again was good for me, you know, to experience. Um, it did have a lot of safety features on it. Um, it did have, you know, the um, blind spot collision warning, rear cross traffic alert, things like that. So there were, you know, it was kind of a hodgepodge of things um, that it did have, you know, in terms of new technology. Overall, the driving experience was excellent. I actually had to go down to JFK to pick up my sister, which was a good you know, 45 miles from my house. So I got some good driving in with it. Road noise was pretty minimal. Uh, you know, cabin comfort was nice. I, it doesn't have, um, you have to either use Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. And, the, and that worked, Android Auto worked pretty well for me. So I didn't have any issues Does with it that. it also have the standard <clears throat> Hyundai Kia uh, interface on the, the screen as well? Like just, you know, just for radio. I mean, no nav obviously, but. Right. It just had the radio, just the yeah. black and white screen with the radio on it. Okay. Yes. And voice control worked pretty well too. Once I had, you know, Android auto activated and, and even without it, I was able to change the radio station and, and things like that. So, you know, again, it's funny to not have a map that even shows up, you know, something like that, but it was, it was overall, you know, the infotainment system was, was totally adequate for the job. And again, uh, the Android auto worked really, really well and, and pretty seamlessly. And I would assume that, um, Apple CarPlay would, would do the same. I, you know, it was, it was comfortable. I mean, this thing is, you know, again, $22,000 it's for, for that price. I think it was really, really competitive, uh, within the segment. I do think, you know, the, the sticker that I had, the, the, what's supposed to be the S turbo, you're starting to get into that 26, 27, 28 range. And I always just go to the fact of like, okay, what else can you get for that price? And, you know, I think about things like the, the um, Hyundai venue that I really, really liked a lot. And I think these are very, very similar to it. So, you know, shop both of those vehicles when you go and look at these things, because I do think that, you know, there's a lot, as you start to get into that 27, 28, 29 price range, you can get a lot of different things. Yeah, I, I was just looking at the specs and, you know, when we first saw the Seltos, uh, I think it was at the LA Auto Show where they unveiled it uh, last uh -huh. November, which seems like a million years ago now. But, um, <laughs> you know, at, at the time, you know, I looked at it and, you know, my assumption was that, you know, that because this was, you know, priced, you know, relatively low, you know, 21000 I think was, you know, was the base price. Um that and and talking to uh, James Bell from Kia, you know that this was based on you know that, that this was Kia's variant of the Venue, right? But in fact, this is actually really a size class up from the Venue. It's quite Isn't a bit larger. Funny? You know, you know it 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 is quite a bit larger because I did feel that. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, you know, uh, I just I just pulled up. You know, comparing the specs, um, this this thing is uh, almost 13 inches longer than a Venue, so it's a it's a more than a foot wow, longer yeah. than a Venue. And the wheelbase is like four inches longer than the venue. So it's, it's a, a quite a bit larger vehicle. Uh, and, you know, so it, it, you know, it makes sense that it's obviously going to be a little more expensive than, than the venue. And, you know, the venue doesn't offer things like a turbocharged engine option. You know, you only have one powertrain option in the venue. Right. Everything's kept fairly simple. 
It is. I mean, and, and I definitely did feel like this was a little bit larger vehicle than the venue because um, a, a, a neighbor down the street that, and I drive by their, their driveway, which is pretty close to the road. And I can, they have a, one of those cool, like kind of China gray colored venues there. Mm-hmm. And so I would sort of look at it and, and, and compare. And I think the venue sits lower. Also the ground clearance on the Celtos is seven, just over seven inches. And you can definitely see that also, you know, again, I think it's, uh, it's a good, it's a good solid vehicle. I'd love to drive one with all of the accoutrements and kind of get that the full, full luxury ex- quote luxury of, you know, the full, uh, option fully optioned out experience in it but you know again like once I was in it and once I had the temperature right (laughs) um it was it was a good experience overall I think it's definitely a vehicle that deserves to be test driven deserves to you know be in that comparison shopping when you go I also just you know Kia is just doing a lot of things really really well and like Hyundai as well and so I think you know, it's, it's just a good, it's a good product overall. It was solidly built, no rattles, you know, all those switches and the buttons and everything were intuitive and the cloth, you know, the cloth seats were really nice. I mean, again, it's, I, it was sort of this weird, um, you know, car that you can't buy, but from a spec standpoint, but from a overall driving experience. Oh, the other thing it didn't have was power seats. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just, again, it was just sort of funny to be in a car like that. Uh, but it was a good experience though, overall. I liked it. Well, that's great. Um, you know, it, going back to what you're talking about with the keyless entry, um, you know, fortunately, you know, Almost all new vehicles have it now, you know, except for, you know, in some cases, the base models of some lower cost vehicles. Uh, but, you know, the vast majority, even, you know, even things like the Kia Rio, you know, except for the base trim level, you know, right. you've got keyless entry available. And, and uh, you know, the specs for the Seltos indicate that it should be standard on there. So I think, you know, most likely, you know, this particular situation, a lot of times the, the cars that are in the press fleet are pre-production vehicles that right. are shipped over and they're not necessarily exactly the right spec of what's going to go on sale. And so that's probably the case here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that, you know, that they shipped over a car. You know, I mean, this is probably a car that was built, you know, maybe for another market, you know, but that they shipped over one that didn't have some of those features. But uh, you, I agree with, with what you're saying, you know, the, the rationale for having keyless entry, you know, it is, it, it is more than just a, a convenience feature. You know, in some cases, it's, it's actually, it can actually be a real valid safety feature as well. Right. And that's one thing also um, that I want to emphasize to our listeners is that when you are shopping, some of these things seem like, like um, I'm almost like overkill, like, oh, why, why would I need that? But you really, on those test drives, you've got to, try out some of these features, try out like rear cross traffic alert. I've spoken about this before. When you are in a parking lot, especially with SUVs, everyone has SUVs now. When you're trying to back out, having that rear cross traffic alert, having that pedestrian alert, things like that, that rear camera that and those sensors that are picking up things that you can't see. Mm-hmm. So on that test drive, you know, 
it's it's funny because you always you know they have a, an assigned route and you're supposed to do this that and thing no i am all about take it in situations that you have that you experience if you have to parallel park regularly parallel park that car when you're on a test drive because i'll tell you one of the things that again like you know as somebody who sits sits closer like the a pillar the width of the a pillar is really important to me and there's been times when visibility has been pretty compromised if you drive that car on your regular route and do the things that you do in that car it's worth spending the extra time you're investing you know tens of thousands of dollars in this thing whether it's new or used it doesn't matter it's drive it in your experience the way that you live it yeah no totally agree and and, you know that's what we try to do every week with the cars that we're driving is you know use it the way the way normal people would you know i mean obviously we don't have access to to test tracks we don't go out and do instrumented testing with vehicles you know the way uh you know a car and driver or motor trend would do uh but you know we're just trying to experience it to the degree that we can you know the way an average consumer would and you know tr- give that kind of feedback you know so hopefully you know provide something useful to the listeners right um, exactly so um you know what you know, would, would you, you know, would, would you take this over the venue or, you know, or even, you know, like the Kia Sportage or, uh, you know, other options, you know, so this is really, you know, based on the size of this vehicle, it's, it's really more in the, the compact rather than kind of in between compact and subcompact in terms of uh, size, it's 172 inches long. So it's a little bit smaller than, uh, you know, like a, a CRV or Escape or RAV4. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I think it depends on your household and and your budget. I think that, you know, when I think about vehicles like the Buick Encore GX, which was a four, five, six thousand dollars more than the top of the line Celtos, but man, that thing was super, super nice. I think that, you know, it depends on your budget. If you are maxed out at twenty five thousand, then I think this is a good option. And also think, keep in mind too, you know, let's in that price range. What can you get on the used car market, you know, versus the new car market? So I think that it's still it's definitely worth a a test drive, um, but it's also worth trying other you know, other size vehicles. I liked this size. I don't, you know, I was trying to like the fuel economy is rated at 25 up to 30 with 27. Um, so, you know, one of the competitors that comes up to is the Subaru Crosstrek, which I think is a really, really good vehicle as well. So, you know, so they're listing the Hyundai Kona as the competitor, which I think I had the Kona last year rather than the venue. I uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, I like the styling of it a lot also. So, you know, there's, as we've talked about before, there's not a lot of bad cars out there. I think that I would definitely look at the Crosstrek for sure. I wasn't crazy about the Honda HRV. I haven't had it for about a year and a half, probably two years now, but I remember it being fairly tinny and, mm-hmm. and not, a, you know, there's, Honda's always tend to, I should say, they often will have a pretty loud road noise. And that was not the case that I felt with the, with the Kia Seltos. The other thing too, that you mentioned is the infotainment system. 
you have to see which infotainment system is is easy for you, is ergonomically friendly for you, is intuitive, makes sense. You're not fighting with it all the time. You know, so again, these are kind of some of the things that I would look at when you're when you're testing the the Celtos against things like the Kona, the Crosscheck and and the HRB. Yeah, and uh, you know, absolutely, you know, when you're going to do a test drive, you know, you're probably going to have your phone with you, but you know, take a USB cable with you and you know, plug in your phone and and see what it's like to actually pair it. Go through that whole process, you know, see what it's like to use uh, you know, the your your phone with that vehicle you know what that what that experience is like exactly uh, i mean the sportage is quite is larger than this and gives you more of that suv feeling you know in my mind but yeah no you you've got to test these things with your phone with your lifestyle what is it to load and unload you know i liked the fact that with that only seven inch ground clearance you can get heavy items into the back easier all that kind of stuff just plays into whether you're going to be happy. This, these sort of emotional solutions as, as I've called them, you know, how, how is it to live with? Yeah, uh, you're right. The Sportage is about four and a half inches longer than this one. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of this step, you know, as you go, you know, the, the, uh, the venue is 159 inches long. The Kona is 164. Then the Seltos is 172 and then 176 and a half for the Sportage. So it's kind of, you know, there's, Somewhere in there, there's one that's going to fit your your lifestyle. It's a Goldilocks thing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. So you were in a much fancier vehicle than I was. Uh, a little, little bit fancier, <laughs> a little, little bit more expensive. But um, I've driven this one it, as well. But it, but it had a turbocharged four-cylinder engine. It was a compact crossover. So, you know, same same thing, right? Yeah, same thing, right. <laughs> yeah. No, I had the, uh, the, the BMW X3 xDrive 30E, you know, uh, yet another example of BMW's cumbersome naming strategy. <laughs> um, so this is the, the latest, it's the plug-in hybrid variant of the X3. Um, unfortunately, uh, BMW has opted not to offer the new iX3, which is their full battery electric version uh, in the U.S. Um, for the time being. Um, I think most likely because it, it probably took a look at um, you know, Audi and Jaguar and realized that the iX3 is probably not going to have enough range to really be competitive at their, their price point. Um, and so they're, I think they're waiting, waiting until the next generation or actually waiting until the iNext, um, you know, which is a dedicated EV rather than conversion comes out next year. Right. But the, the, the uh, 30E is the plug-in hybrid version. So like uh, most of uh, BMW's other plug-in hybrids, it uses their their two-liter turbo four-cylinder, um, and it's there's an electric motor uh, sandwiched between the engine and the transmission, um, eight-speed automatic transmission. Uh, in this case, it's all-wheel drive as well, uh, and uh, it has a, a range, uh, all-electric driving range, officially rated at 18 miles. Um, I went and you know went for a drive, you know, had it fully charged up drove around through a variety of conditions, you know, um, you know, urban, suburban, uh, highway conditions. I actually got 23 miles of range out of it before the engine came on and stayed on in regular hybrid mode. Wow. That's awesome. I don't think I got that. I think I got maybe 20, I did get more than 18 though, but yeah, so that's, that's really, really good. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, which, you know, Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and the X3 is a, a, a nice vehicle. It's got a really nice interior, drives well. Uh, you know, this is basically 
you know, think of it, you know, like an elevated three series hatchback, you know, wagon. Um, so, you know, it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call it a, a full blown SUV, but you know, neither is BMW to BMW. These are sport activity vehicles. They don't make sport utility vehicles. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's pl- plenty of uh, cargo space in the back. You know, we took it to, to go to the lake uh, on a Saturday morning and, you know, had, uh, had the inflatable paddleboard and a couple of beach chairs and assorted other detritus in the back. And, and then, um, uh, Daisy, uh, and our, and our daughter, Sophie in the, in the back seat. Uh, so there was, you know, plenty of, plenty of room inside. It's, it's comfortable to drive. Um, I said, gets, you know, really good fuel efficiency. Even when you get into hybrid mode, uh, after the battery has been depleted, you're still getting, you know, 35 to 40 miles per gallon, uh, which I think is, is really good for a vehicle of this type. It's got plenty of performance, um, 282 horsepower, uh, combined from the engine and the electric motor. And even when you're in electric drive mode, there's, there's plenty of performance, uh, you know, as long as you're not, you know, shotgunning it, um, you know, you've got different drive modes to choose from. There's an eco mode, there's uh, comfort mode, sport mode, um, in, you know, comfort mode or eco mode, uh, you, you know, you can, accelerate at, at reasonable speeds, you know, so you're not sitting there trying to feather the accelerator, you know, it, uh, it will actually, you know, it shows you on the gauge, you know, the limit of where, um, you know, where if you go beyond this, it's going to turn on the engine and, you know, it'll actually try to, you know, as long as you're not, you know, really getting hard onto the accelerator, it will basically try to keep it near right near that limit and keep it in electric mode, uh, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's nice, you know, so you can, it's really easy to drive around electrically. So the, you know, the reality is most people can do most of their driving, you know, most of their, you know, they're driving around, you know, if you, if schools were open and you could actually take your kids to school and drop them off and pick them up and, you know, do your shopping, um, you could do all that sort of thing without using any gas in this thing. Um, the, the one that I had, uh, had the M sport package on it and, and assorted other, um, options, you know, so the, um, the base price is starts at like $48,000. So it's, you know, it's not inexpensive. Uh, it's, it's fairly pricey, but, um, you know, it's for a BMW, it's actually not totally unreasonable. I am this week driving another BMW that we'll talk about next time that is not as nice as this. And cost $50,000. So, uh, we'll come back to that one next time. Uh, the, the one that I had, it didn't come with a Monroney, but, uh, building one is as close as I could, uh, on the BMW website, it came to, um, just about $60,000 delivered. So, you know, it's a fairly pricey vehicle, but you know, it's a BMW. So you get what you get, you know, so nice interior, uh, really nice seats. The M sport package, you know, comes with nice sport seats and, uh, including a, you know, adjustable thigh supports, all that sort of stuff, all the, all the driver assist systems. So you got adaptive cruise control and lane keeping assist and, uh, actually lane centering. Uh, so it's, it, it's good. I, you know, I was, I was impressed with it. I, I, I like driving it. Um, and I generally, I, I've always liked, uh, driving BMW's plug-in hybrids uh, ever since uh, like probably about three years ago that I first drove the uh, the 7 Series plug-in hybrid with basically the same powertrain in it. Uh, and, you know, it's it's really smooth and seamless and quiet. Uh, you know, when it does transition from electric mode to hybrid mode and the engine starts up, you don't feel it at all. I mean, it is, it's really, you just, 
just transitions. The only thing is you, you'll just, if you listen carefully, you, you'll hear the engine come on, but you won't feel anything at all. Uh, so it's great in that respect. Um, you know, if you're wanting to go at least partially electric, but you're not quite ready to make the jump to a full battery electric vehicle um, and you want something premium, you know, I mean, there are obviously other options, you know, at lower price points, but if you want something, you know, that feels premium and gives you that ability to do a lot of your driving uh, electrically, this is definitely one worthy of consideration. Yeah, I really liked it. It sounds like we had a very, very similar experience and a similar vehicle because looking at mine, mine did have a sticker with it. It started at $49,545 and that includes the $995 destination. And then as tested was $60,545. So I think it's very, very similar. Probably the same spec, yeah. Right. I got 34.7 miles per gallon um, and that was including 65 miles of driving in EV mode only. Uh, And you know, just, I had a really, really good experience. I talked about it a couple of episodes ago, but I think you're right. I think that it's a good option of that. If you want a plug-in electric without going full battery electric, I think this is a really good small family car. You know, there, there was, it was, it was quite roomy, very, very comfortable. I've had BMWs for a long time. So for me, it was, it was, I compared to you know putting on my favorite slippers because I just got in and I was like, oh, well, you owned a, so an X3 before, right? I did. Before I had two X3s the, and yeah. then I moved to the X5, which was way too big for me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, and it's funny because that was um, 10 years ago now that I had, I think my X5 was a 2011. And it's funny because now, you know, to your first point of their naming conventions, they have X2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Like I definitely could have found one in the middle. I probably would have gotten an X4 um, and still been in the brand because I I ended up getting rid of the X5 because it was just too big. Uh, But, you know, I, I do think that this is a great, a great vehicle for if you've got the type of lifestyle that you're doing a lot of in-town errands, you know, or like even the new lifestyle of working from home and just needing to get out every once in a while, you can do an awful lot of that in EV mode. I, you know, I, I, I am looking at getting a high-speed charger installed in the house because the trickle charging was painful 14 hours, you know, to get, about 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it doesn't matter if it's just sitting there, whatever, it doesn't matter then. Now I did just lose power for five days, um, in the tropical storm that we had this week. So obviously that would be sub op. And that's again, to your hand, point, that's, well, that's that, also an advantage of a plug-in hybrid. Versus exactly. Battery to your electric. point of, you know, that's why having that dual fuel option is really, really good because, you're not going to get in a jam, you know? So I think that there, I, I like this idea. I like that combination of being able to have uh, EV mode when you want it and, and when you can use it and then just gasoline. So mm-hmm. I, I like this car a lot. Yeah. All right. Oh, you know, the other thing too, I felt uh, a couple of points that I made earlier, I think I loved the infotainment system and the heads up display in this. It was really, really good. Um, I think that gesture control is a total waste of money. 
<laughs> I just have yes, to reinforce I, that. <laughs> I, I, I would definitely agree with that. It's 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 an it's a total gimmick. I mean, really, know, I just I, end up giving when, it the finger. When I'm twirling my finger, <laughs> yeah, when I'm twirling my finger around two inches away from the the knob to just I could just twist exactly. and do that knob with more far more precision. Yeah, um, I, I'm I'm curious to see when BMW finally gives up on the gesture control. Uh, right? Yeah, move on. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. All right, so let's let's get into some of the uh, the news of the past week. Yes, um, we had uh, a little announcement from Ford last week. Um, you want to talk about that? Uh, oh, uh, was that you mean Jim? <laughs> Which Jim? Yeah, Jim, Jim, <laughs> yes. and Jim. Yes, Jim and Jim. So yeah, so Ford uh, is transitioning from the Jim Hackett. Uh, three-ish year era to the Jim Farley era, which I think, I think that will be a really interesting uh, transition for them. You know, Keith Naughton from Bloomberg, uh, he, he tweeted out something like this is his eighth Ford's covering his eighth Ford CEO. And one of the things that I feel like needs to be conveyed, you know, Jim Farley's been there for 13 years. And I think he's, I think he's, he's the obvious transition after um, Heinrichs was uh, unceremoniously released. But I think that Jim really, I would love to see him convey that. Why is he the right person? What is he going to be doing? How is he going to be doing it differently or motivating the culture of Ford and motivating the stock price, frankly. I think that that is one of his biggest tasks is to show Wall Street why he's the right guy and why it's going to be different this time. And, you know, Mark Fields was let go because one of the reasons was the stock price was abysmal and under Hackett, the stock price fell even more. And well, you know, there, there were, there were a lot of other reasons why Mark Fields. I realized left. there was internal reasons yes. why Mark Fields was let go. There's external reasons of the stock price, but you know, the external measure of that is the stock price. And so I think, you know, conveying to Wall Street uh, and the industry is something, the message of what the Farley years are going to look like, I think is really critical. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a lot, I've developed a lot of respect for Jim Hackett over the last couple of years, you know, watching closely, you know, what Ford's been doing. And, you know, there, there's things that I've seen that I'm not at liberty to talk about, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think that he has put them on the right path. Uh, you know, to, you know, to his credit, I think he's done a lot of good for Ford over the last mm-hmm. three years, but you know, his, his personality and, you know, he, he's, let's just say he's not the most dynamic person out there. Right. You know, I think, I think he's the kind of person that with the people that he works with directly internally, I think he's good at, at giving them, you know, the direction and the vision and, you know, getting them, you know, to do their, do their jobs, doing what they need to do to succeed. Um, but I think he's, he's not the kind of out there person that's going to inspire, um, you know, investors and, and, um, especially retail investors, you know, he's clearly no Elon Musk. Right. (laughs) Thankfully there, there is no one else like that either. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Jim Farley, you know, is, is you and I, you know, we've seen him speak many times, you know, publicly. Uh, we've spoke, spoken and to him privately, privately yeah. as well. Um, and he is, um, 
I think I think he's the kind of person who can definitely put a face on Ford that will be more inspiring to outsiders. You know, he, he's able to articulate the the story of, of what he wants to do and, and, you know, what, why are they doing what they're doing? Right. Um, more so, you know, so I think it's, I think he's a, probably a better communicator, especially an external communicator than Hackett. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from what I've seen, you know, he and Hackett were very much on the same page as far as the direction they wanted to take the company. So I, I don't expect to see any notable changes in the direction for Ford over the next several years, but just, you know, maybe more, uh, uh, maybe a better job of articulating what that vision is. And I think a big part of that is going to come with, um, you know, seeing the products that are going to be coming out over the next 12 to 24 months, right? Um, you know, because ultimately that's what it comes down to is what is the company actually selling? Right. And if they can, if they can execute on the product plan, you know, and get vehicles like the new F-150, the Mach-E, the Bronco, um, and other stuff that's yet to yet to be shown, um, on, on sale, get them built correctly, n- avoid the kind of fiasco they had with the Explorer last year, then I think that that will really inspire a lot more confidence in Ford. And then, you know, going forward, you know, as they move into more into the mobility realm and uh, get, you know, get their automated driving program uh, commercialized, uh, getting more of the electric vehicles, especially the electric F-150 and the, and the transit. I think those two, you know, I mean, those, those are the electric F-150 and the transit are not the sexy products. I mean, that's, the, mm-hmm. that's the Mach-E, but I think from a, from a business standpoint there, I think those are actually far more important to Ford than uh, the Mach-E will be, you know, both in terms of volume, but also in terms of the kinds of customers that are going to buy those that, that want those and, and need that type of vehicle. And, you know, talk, you know, when I interviewed uh, Jim Farley last fall, uh, and I'll put a link to that, uh, to that recording um, in the show notes, you know, one of the things he talked about quite a bit there, you know, was, Ford's strength in commercial vehicles. You know, they understand mm-hmm. the commercial vehicle market. And from a business perspective, I mean, people look at Ford and they, they get excited by Mustang. But, you know, it's selling Super Duties and F-150s and Transits to commercial customers. That's what makes the money. That's well, what makes right. that's that's what what the Mustang. bottom line, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. makes the Mustang possible. Yeah, uh, for sure. Know. And so I think, you know, when when they get those vehicles into the marketplace, I think it'll show that, you know, Ford can really produce, you know, electric vehicles that also play to their strength, you know, in, right. in the commercial sector. So, yeah, no, I, th- I think so too. I, and, you know, I think that, that Jim is authentic. I, I think he's believable. I, uh, you know, and not to say that Hackett isn't, but as you said, he's it's, he's a very, very different type of personality. And I think that, you know, I like Jim's global background as well. He's had experience overseas. And, and I agree. I think that he's been behind the scenes pushing a lot of what they've been doing on that product side. And, you know, sitting down with him, he's believable, he's likable, he's responsive. And, you know, I'd love to see him, 
you know, in meetings, you know, with a, a lot of, you know, small group meetings and such, you know, with people, I think the dealers are like him as well. And, and that's important. And, and I think they can get excited. It's funny because when I realized he was 58, he looks like he's 40. I mean, he looks like he's exactly the same as he, as he was when he joined the company, which is impressive <laughs> from, from all the stress that he's had, you know, that they all have. But, um, you know, I think that, He's he's a little bit of like a kid in a candy store, and that's can be a very appealing trait to be able to convey the passion and excitement and authenticity that is necessary. I to to execute on on plans like they do have because I, I totally agree. I think from a product standpoint, um, they've done a lot of good things, and also from you know Lincoln, of course, has been revitalized as well. And while Kumar Goholtra was one of the key operators of that, and he's been promoted as well, I do think that that is again part of that whole realm of senior leadership within Ford of understanding who's in the marketplace and what it takes to buy. So it was, it was, uh, speaking of Lincoln, uh, last week, I think it was last Friday, we had a little small group session with Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say so it, it was for a um, national relaxation day or something stupid like that. And well, if there's anybody that's going to relax, you, it's <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. Right. But you know, he, we didn't, unfortunately we didn't get to uh, speak directly with him, but he was, he, he was also very, very authentic. And one of the things that I really related to was he talked about his 88 year old mother and she's in, you know, she doesn't, she didn't live with them, but he said in March, we went and got her and brought us, brought her home to, you know, to live with us, to go through COVID together and, you know, and to get through this pandemic. And that was something that I very much related to because I'm dealing with the same, you know, my mom mom is 86 and she's living with my sister and, and, but it was one of the first things that he talked about. And, and what his family is going through and stuff. And it was just, it was very, very real and very relatable and very down to earth. And he was incredibly encouraging to, there was another woman that was on that was a um, behavioral um, psychologist specialist, and she lives by herself and, you know, was talking about kind of trying to keep her spirits up and stuff. And, and he was so encouraging and it was, it was a really, you know, again, like those stupid commercials (laughs) that I don't think do him justice. I think that his, uh, I think his personality and and he came out more authentic and those commercials, I think you always have to kind of take them a little tongue in cheek. When I first got to Kelly Blue Book back in 2015, we started doing something called the Matthew meter to see (laughs) how um, the response was and who was who was actually shopping the Lincoln site. And I will tell you that there was a measurable difference in terms of, of income and education level of who was shopping the Lincoln brand after the after the commercials started airing. So I think he's been really good for the brand as well. But it was definitely very interesting and and um and really I, I really I, I grew to have a more of an appreciation for him. As an actor, I think he's amazing. He does he's you know just done incredible things. But um as a person, I, I think that I, it was, it was cool to see him on for, you know, the hour and change that we had with him. That's good. Yeah. It was All right. So, so let's stick with Detroit for the next one. Um, yes. The Cadillac Lyric finally got its public reveal 
last Thursday night. It was originally supposed to be shown back in April. We were supposed to go to LA to see it. We saw it in March at the yes. GM Design Dome. That was the last time any of us saw each other in person. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then uh, they, they, um, they obviously canceled that and they did an online reveal on Thursday. Um, what do you, you know, now that the world has seen the lyric, you know, what are your thoughts? So frankly, I didn't have power yet okay. <laughs> and I have not backtracked to, uh, to watching the reveal itself, but you know, my thoughts on it, I think that it's, it's, you know, that type of vehicle is the right type of vehicle for an EV market. I think it needs to be luxurious. I think it needs to be nice. You know, it means it's kind of that stunning, uh, smooth, elegant SUV that I think is appropriate for an EV market. So I wasn't, you know, I think it was a little bit funky looking back in March, um, which does seem like a lifetime ago. But, you know, I think that this is the type of product that could move people to Cadillac if they believe that Cadillac can produce the same kind of technology that Tesla does, because that's really who they're competing with. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Tesla is their, that's their target with this right. vehicle. Um, you know, and it's, I, I think, I, I love the design. You know, I think what they've done with the design of this, um, you know, taking, you know, going to the next generation of Cadillac design, you know, it's, it's got some echoes of, you know, where we are today with their, their current generation of design language, but it's something that is even more contemporary and, you know, sets their, the electric Cadillacs apart from the, what they have today. Yes, um, very much so. And the, the interior is just fabulous on yeah. this thing. You know, that 33-inch display panel, you know, one, one solid display all the way across. It reminds it, me of the Porsche Taycan. Yeah, except the, the Taycan's actually several separate right. pieces. Right, this you know, was where, all one. Where it's just one, one seamless display all the way yeah. across from, from the A-pillar all the way across the, across the center stack. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the design is great. You know, I, I was at uh, a luncheon, <clears throat> a Cadillac luncheon um, back in December um, with uh, Steve Carlisle and, and uh, uh, others from, from Cadillac. And he talked at the time about what they were planning to do with, um, you know, with their electric vehicles. And one of the things that Carlisle said at the time, Steve Carlisle is the president of Cadillac. Uh, he said that, you know, 300 miles is table stakes for a premium. Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you absolutely you cannot go out with less than 300 miles you and they're, they're sure. targeting, you know, having 400 miles available. Yeah. And, that's impressive. You know, they, they, re, they reiterated last week, uh, you know, that they will have over 300 miles on all variants of the lyric, uh, going forward. That's, that's not, that's not an issue. So I'm not concerned about range. They didn't get into any specific specs, on this. Um, the one disappointment that I have is the timing. I, I know. <laughs> I just, I feel, so I feel like I would, I mean, they're, they're definitely late to this party, but I would rather have them late and good or ideally perfect than 
toss something out that isn't ideal and isn't perfect. And that, and that, I, I mean, doing 2022. Late 2022. Late. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, yes. A, a year to 18 months earlier would be great, but it's not. And it is what it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, back in late in the fall of 2017, GM held an event where they announced that they were going to do 20 EVs by 2023. And so far, at least here in North America, they've added zero EVs to their lineup. And that's almost three years ago now. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, it seems pretty clear, you know, the first one that's coming is the, the Hummer, which is going to be next fall, you know, fall of next year. Uh, you know, so it seems pretty clear that at the time that they made that announcement, that they really hadn't started work on any yeah. of these vehicles. I mean, obviously they were working on the technology, they're working on the batteries, the power electronics, the motors, but they hadn't actually started work on any of those 20 vehicles. Cause they showed an image, you know, of 20 vehicles with silks on them, but didn't actually show any of those vehicles at the time. So obviously they hadn't, you know, they had nothing at that point. Right. Um, so, it's pretty, it's a bold move. It's a bold statement to make when you don't, yeah. How much? <laughs> well, and even even the lyric, you know, they showed they they made the original announcement and showed a rendering of it in January of 2019, a year and a half, more than a year and a half ago, when they unveiled the XT6. You know, as it, during the process of that that event, you know, Carlisle put up this this render, this sketch you know, on uh, on the screen, you know, saying this is going to be our first you know electric Cadillac. And he didn't give any indication of timing, except that it would be, you know, they had at that point, they were going through a cadence of, you know, a new new product every six months. Um, and he said, you know, after that, that current product cadence is done, then we'll be introducing this, you know, so that, they, you know, we were kind of expecting, okay, you know, sometime, you know, late 2021, maybe, you know, but it's going to be a full year beyond that. So that's, that's the only unfortunate thing. But, you know, to what you said, you know, even in 2022, this is this market for EVs is still going to be a very small market. I mean, we're probably looking at no more than three or four percent of the market, and but, and that's like tripling it. Yeah, because <laughs> we're like know, at, well, like one percent now. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's it's you know, it's not like they're you know going to be coming into a huge market at that point. It's you know, it's still going to be a tiny market, but it would be nice if you know, with all the GM has said about you know, wanting to be a leader in EVs, wanting to go all electric, you know, if they were able to bring something out a little bit sooner than that. Yeah. Um, but no, when they, and I, sh I will be the first one to admit that I should know this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, when they talk about all electric to our earlier conversation about PHEVs and the convenience of dual fuel or dual power, what are they really talking about here? They mean all electric. Um, Mark, Mark Royce has made it very clear in multiple That's interviews. That's what I was afraid of. I was, I was, I was GM, hoping that I had GM's done with <laughs> GM is done with hybrids. They're not doing any more hybrids. In fact, I, I, and they've discontinued all the hybrids they had. They, so that's what I was, I was afraid that I was, I was hoping that I was misreading these things, nope. but I wasn't. 
So there's not going to be a plug-in hybrid Corvette to anybody that was wondering about that. There's not going to be any other hybrid or plug-in hybrid vehicle from GM. Um, you know, they discontinued the, the Volt. Uh, they dropped the Malibu hybrid. Uh, they discontinued the Cadillac CT6 plug-in hybrid that was sold here. Um, you know, that they sold a few hundred of, I think. <laughs> um, you know, they still have a couple of plug-in hybrids in China. But even those are ultimately going to be replaced with battery electric vehicles. So he's, he said they're not doing any more hybrids going forward. It's, it's all battery electric. That's it. And what is the logic there? Um, you know, there, obviously there are additional costs with doing a plug-in hybrid. Um, it's, you know, overall, it's not as efficient as a battery electric vehicle. Uh, you know, you're carrying around an internal combustion powertrain and right. an electric powertrain. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a compromised thing. And they've decided to, you know, make the investment. And, you know, they, they think, they feel they got, they got far enough along in battery development that they felt that they could, they can get their battery costs down to a point where it's cost competitive and there's no point in doing a hybrid or plug-in hybrid anymore. They're See, just going to go all in on the, on the batteries. The thing is though, for me, it's the battery technology is absolutely critical, but the charging speed is, is the other part of that. I mean, that is the fork to the knife in this situation in my mind you know, the only reason that range and range anxiety is a thing is because of charging time and access to stations. We all should have gas range anxiety because you run out at 300 miles, let's say, but we don't because it's familiar and gas stations are convenient and recharging. There's 168,000 gas stations in the United States right now. Exactly. <laughs> and so the idea that, you know, that the battery technology, it's also about that recharging technology, the refueling aspect of it is just as critical to the success. I've said it before and I will say it again. We have, we have to do a better job of conveying to the consumer why an EV is, is a better solution to their mobility than a gas powered vehicle is. And right now it doesn't look like it's more convenient to the consumer. It doesn't appear to be more convenient. It's not more convenient and it's not better from the, from the values that people have. You know, when you think about something like the iPhone or an iPad or, or, you know, even a laptop and I realize it's not hundred percent, you know, apples to apples, but no one intended. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good one. But, but my point is that people were willing to adopt the technology of Apple because it was better. It wasn't technology they asked for, like Steve Jobs said, but it was better. It, it was perceived to be better, even if the reality wasn't there. And so I think we as an industry need to do a really good job of conveying to people why EVs are better and, and that's why they should buy them. And it's not just about the environment because people don't care enough. Right. And, you know, to their credit, um, you know, Automakers are starting to invest more in the charging side of it. This is something that, yes, as we saw, aside, aside, aside from Tesla, you know, they 
until fairly recently, they've been reluctant to invest in the infrastructure side of it. Well, they don't and invest they, in gas stations, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, they, they never owned the, the liquid fuel infrastructure and right. they felt that they didn't need to invest in the electric charging infrastructure. Right. Now they're seeing, you know, especially, you know, as they start to reach the, the point where, you know, they're no longer going to have, um, the incentives, you know, tax incentives for, to get people to buy them, they have to find the other reasons to, con, you know, to convince consumers to buy these vehicles. And, you know, so, you know, GM made their announcement with EVgo that, you know, they're going to put in a bunch of DC fast charging stations in urban and suburban areas and locate them at places like grocery stores, you know, places where people are going anyway. Right. Um, you know, in, in order to accommodate those people that, can't charge at home, um, you know, and make it fast enough to charge so that, you know, you can, you can do your driving, you go in, you do something you were going to do anyway, you don't have to go out of your way. That's the key is not having to go out of your way and not sitting there in your car for an hour waiting for it to charge. You know, you go, you go, go to the grocery store, you plug in the car, you go in, do your shopping for the week, and you come out 20 or 30 minutes later, and your car's charged up. Right. And then you, then you drive home, you know, so even if you don't have access to charging at home, you, you're not going around looking for a charging station. It's there where, where you want to be. Right. Uh, so, you know, those are the kinds of things. And then, you know, in the case of what Ford's doing with Ford pass, you know, aggregating multiple charging networks, you know, to, again, trying to make it as seamless and reducing the friction in the ownership experience. So, you know, these are the kinds of things they need to do and you just need more of it. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah. All right. Next up, something not electric. Oh, should we stay on electric though and talk about Hyundai's? Okay, announcement? let's let's do that then. Let's let's stay Just with for that. Seamless, sir, you okay. know, seamless. All right. <laughs> so uh, Hyundai, uh, we're recording this on Monday morning. Hyundai made put out a press release last night um, that they are uh, creating a new brand called Ionic, and details on this are a little bit sketchy at the moment. Uh, in fact, let me just check and see if, uh, oops, sorry about that. Uh, I just want to see if I got an email response back from Hyundai on a question I had, and I'm not seeing anything yet. Um, so what they announced was, you know, currently there's a, a car called the Hyundai Ionic, which they launched a few years ago, which is a compact hatchback. Uh, it's on the same platform as the Kia Nero, And, you know, it's designed to be um, electrified, across the board, not electric, but electrified. So there's three variants of the Ionic. There's a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, and a battery electric version. And the battery electric version currently gets uh, 170 miles of range. Um, unfortunately for, uh, you know, for Hyundai, you know, it's a car in a form factor, you know, compact hatchback, you know, kind of similar shape, but, you know, lot less weird looking than a Prius um, <laughs> that is out of fashion today. And, you know, it's, it's done okay, but it hasn't been a huge seller, but you know, that's been their, their brand for electrified vehicles. Now Hyundai is going to have a distinct brand. And what's not clear is when they say distinct brand, is this going to be a standalone brand like Genesis or Polestar for Volvo that is electric only? And that's what Ionic is going to be. It's going to be electric cars going forward, electric vehicles, uh, cars and crossovers. Or is this going to be uh, a sub-brand? You know, so are, are they are they going to have are they going to be called Hyundai's or are they just going to be called Ionics and Ionic Five, Ionic Six, Ionic Seven, 
or are they going to be Hyundai Ionics? You know, where you know it's more like Volkswagen and their ID three or ID electric vehicles, ID three, ID four, and so on. Uh, what do you think about all this? So I'm just looking at some of the of the stories that are out about it. They're called so. They're calling it the Ionic sub-brand. But then in the next sentence, says that means Ionic could become much like like to Hyundai what Polestar is to Volvo. So I, I agree with you. I think it's unclear. My issue with this is it plays into what I just spoke about before, about I, I, it reinforces that these things are weird and different. And that is the only thing I don't like. It reminds me of the of the Audi e-tron, which I love that car and I want it to be the Q6. I don't want it to be weird. I don't want it to have a weird name, a different name. I want it to be seamlessly integrated into the showroom where it's sits side by side with internal combustion engines, that this is just an alternative powertrain, an alternative power source for a consumer. It's not a different weird thing. I don't know. I just, that was my first reaction was that the amount of money that needs to go into into educating consumers on the familiarity of the Ionic brand when they already have a familiar brand in Hyundai. Everyone already knows Hyundai. They don't always know how to pronounce it. It's like Sunday, but they know that it exists and, and, and the awareness level of the Hyundai brand is, is I would imagine pretty high. So as, as you're speaking, um, I, I did get an email from Brandon Ramirez at, at Hyundai oh, okay. PR. I uh, confirmed that they will be sold through Hyundai dealers. It'll be the Hyundai Ionic 5, Ionic 6. Ionic 5 is the first one uh, crossover that's coming in the fall of 2021. Uh, so it's, they're, they're thinking of it more like their end brand. Okay. Um, so I still, I still am not a fan because I feel like if we are going to push onto the consumer that these vehicles are good, if not better than internal combustion engines, they can't be weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't be this special thing this different thing it just it, i would rather from a from a strategic standpoint i would rather just have it be presented as an alternative like diesel is to gasoline or you know that kind of you know a usb versus a usb c it, it's i just i don't i don't understand the need to isolate these vehicles because I think it's isolating. I don't think it's elevating them. I think it's just isolating them. And the amount of money that will go into even promoting this Ionic sub-brand, it's like Volvo with Polestar. Volvo is a really good name that everybody knows. Why isolate these vehicles into a separate compartment? I don't get that. Well, and you know, for Volvo in particular, you know, they're also going to have battery electric Volvos. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, it's, I not, mean, it's not like the Polestar is going to be the only one with electric vehicles. You know, in this case here, you know, what Hyundai is doing sounds almost the same as what Toyota tried to do you know, in the late 2000s when they decided we're going to make Prius. You know, yes. Prius is still popular. We're going to make it 
a, a separate sub brand, you know, a family. And they had the, they launched the Prius V and the Prius C, you know, and, you know, by the, by the time those cars came out, you know, they had just, they had a, a few years where they were, they did okay. But, you know, at that point, hybrids in general were becoming more mainstream and you could get hybrid variants of pretty much everything in the, the Toyota lineup. And, you know, today, you know, the Prius, the Prius V and C are gone. The, the, the regular Prius, you know, is declining in sales year over year. And the most popular hybrid Toyota is the RAV4. Right. You know, so I, <laughs> why, why you would do this instead of just, you know, integrating it more cleanly into the Hyundai lineup uh, doesn't quite make sense to me. I'm not sure that this is a good idea. I, I agree. I agree completely. And it's interesting because we hadn't talked about this at all beforehand. And so, but I think that we're very much on the same page that it's, I just, I feel like the, the marketing dollars that need to go into educating consumers and, and increasing brand awareness for Hyundai Ionic five, six, seven is just, I think it's money that could be spent elsewhere. You know, well, especially given that, you know, when Toyota did the Prius family, you know, it's like everybody knew what a Prius was yeah, that surprise, time, yeah. 2007, 2008 <laughs> Prius was, you know, it wasn't the biggest selling vehicle in the world, but it was pretty, I mean, it was doing 250,000, right? 250,000 a year. Yeah. And even people that didn't own a Prius knew what a Prius was. Right. Whereas today Hyundai's selling, you know, maybe 25,000 Ionics a year. Nobody knows what an Ionic is unless you happen to have been in a Hyundai dealer. You know, I, I've never seen any marketing for the Ionic. Uh, you know, I like it. It's a nice car, but you know, nobody knows what it is. I think we need to live in California to see the marketing. That's, that's probably true. Although they, they do sell the hybrid uh, nationally. The, the plugins yes, yeah, are only but, sold in, Cal- in Zev State. They're probably but, focusing their yeah. marketing dollars in, in California. But yeah, so that's sort of, you know, and again, my, my whole thing is just, we can't expect a consumer to consider an EV if we keep making them weird, if we keep isolating them, we keep putting them in a separate area, or these are, you know, these are the different ones. No, you put them all in the same showroom, you walk around, oh, this one's electric, this one's gas. This one's diesel. This is a P and you give them, it's that, you know, it's that it's, it makes them more familiar. It keeps them all at the same level. You're just giving a consumer a choice. It's like, you know, like when you go shopping for ground beef and it'll say 80, 20, 15, you know, 15, 85 different levels of fat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, they don't have them in, you know, you don't have to go over to the separate section. They're all together. You pick which one suits your dietary needs best. Let's just do that with these mobility, these powertrains, this, this, you know, how you get from A to B. I just, I, I just, I feel like we need to stop making these things different. (coughs) And, you know, to, you know, Audi, for example, um, you know, when I spoke to them at the LA Auto Show last fall, uh, we talked about e-tron and, you know, the, the way they described it, you know, because when when they first started, talk, when they first introduced the e-tron, the, the original e-tron, you know, they, they were referring to it as the e-tron quattro. Mm-hmm. And then eventually just dropped that and just made it just e-tron. 
And the way they they describe it now is that the original e-tron, they're you know sort of like the Ur Quattro. You know, it's the Ur e-tron, and e-tron is just going to be the uh, the suffix that they add to their plug-in vehicles going forward. So you're going to have like the the Q4 uh, e-tron, uh, which is going to be the battery electric e-tron, uh, and you know, ver- you know various other models as they go forward. Just like they they've done with Quattro. You know, originally Quattro was a mm. single standalone model. Now Quattro refers to all-wheel drive Audis. Right. E-tron is going to that's going to be what tells you that you know the Q4, the Q7, or whatever it is has a plug. Yeah, you know, and right. that, that's how they're that's how they're moving forward with that. So you know maybe you know maybe that's what um, Hyundai does. You know something like that. I don't know, um, but I, I'm I, I agree. I don't think that this is necessarily the right approach, and I think that this might be a, a waste of resources. Yes, yeah, that's that's the main thing to me is that it's it's is this is this the best use of resources at this time for consumers? And and I. I'm not, I'm not there either. Okay. Well, speaking of resources, <laughs> Mr. Gordon Murray, always one of, you know, from the time I was a kid, when I first started following formula one in the 1970s, um, his work, you know, he was a, he was the technical director, chief designer at Brabham back then, Brabham formula one. And he created some of the most amazing Formula One cars, you know, today you look at F1 cars and they all pretty much look the same. You know, when you looked at F1 cars in the seventies and, and early eighties, you could always tell the, the one that probably came from Gordon Murray. <laughs> um, you know, his, his mind works in a different way. Uh, you know, he, he had the BT 46 B fan car, which was unbelievable. And you know, there was, was it the BT 55, I think, was the one, you know, they were using a turbocharged four-cylinder BMW engine that um, he wanted to lower the center of gravity. You know, when they first started using that engine, you know, like most four-cylinders, it stood upright, you know, perpendicular to the ground. He said, why can't we tilt it over on its side and run it that way so we get a lower center of gravity? And so BMW built a new new um, uh, engine block for it and tilted it over like 80 degrees off vertical. Um, and you know, all kinds of wild stuff. And then he got out of formula one and started doing, um, road cars and he created something called the McLaren F1. Mm-hmm. Which, a car. Yeah. It's a small thing. I mean, they only sold 106 of them, <laughs> you know, so Not iconic you know, at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, which was, I think, you know, up until last week, probably the, the, my favorite supercar of all time, mm. you know, um, it, it's certainly, I, you know, if I had a choice between a Bugatti and an F1, you know, or any contemporary McLaren for that matter, I would take the F1 in a heartbeat, you know, three seater driver in the middle, that BMW V12 engine. Um, I, you know, in the early nineties in like 93, 94, I spent some time over in England. Um, we're, you know, the, company I was working for at the time, Kelsey Hayes, we were uh, doing ABS and traction control development at a test track in, in, uh, in England near, uh, near Coventry called Myra. Um, and, you know, it was a track that was used by a lot of different companies in that area, including McLaren. And, you know, at, 
before the McLaren, the F1 went into production, we got, you know, for several months, we were seeing them out there, you know, two, three times a week. You know, and I got a chance one day by the control tower, you know, there while the driver was inside checking in, uh, you know, it was sitting there with the engine cover open and I'm checking this thing out. It was amazing <laughs> getting to see this thing up close. Uh, and that was before cell phones. So you couldn't take photos that's right. and stuff, right? Well, and, and if, <laughs> well, if, if, uh, even if I had taken a picture, you know, I mean, I would have been thrown arrested. out of the facility. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would have stomped my phone into dust and thrown me out. So, you know, couldn't, couldn't do that sort of thing, but you know, it, it was an amazing sight to see. And this car was so tiny. Um, and Gordon Murray's done a new vehicle called the T50. Um, it's stunning. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and you know, he, he said, you know, he's got nothing against electric vehicles, but you know, he wanted to do, you know, the, the ultimate analog supercar, uh, you know, so there's no electrification on this thing. Um, you know, it's got a four liter, uh, bespoke V12 engine developed by Cosworth that revs to 12,100 RPM makes 660 horsepower. Um, this car, you know, one, one of the things that Murray's always focused on is lightweight. You know, the, the F1, you know, you look at, at a Bugatti, you know, weighs about 3,500 pounds. You know, the F1 was just over 2,200 pounds. This one is actually 986 kilos or about 2,178 pounds. Um, with 660 horsepower. It, it's unreal. What do you think of it? I think it's stunning. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, it, and you put it perfectly. It's, it is a true analog car, just about the driving experience. I mean, the way that it opens up, it, it's this huge front hood and that's how you actually get into the car it looks like a rocket ship from the back it it's just it's stunningly stunningly gorgeous you know i i don't i don't spend nearly enough time in supercars but i did get a chance to drive the bugatti <laughs> right uh, i did get a chance to drive the uh, bugatti chiron and that was an incredible experience i mean this thing is you know it's for a hundred people they're making a hundred of them and I will say that when you think about these, you know, having recently met a couple of people that are both collectors, but users of and drivers of these supercars, I think that those hundred people are, you know, will appreciate them. I mean, when you, when you only have to pick a hundred people, you're going to get people that, that get it, that, that look and say, you know, this is, this is, this is what's driving, what driving is about. And, you know, it's funny. I think about sometimes like I, I complain a lot about infotainment systems and things like that, but you know, in Bugatti's world, they actually prefer to keep that stuff all to a minimum because it also ages the vehicle. You can tell when that vehicle came out. When you look at something like the T50, it is it, your only responsibility in that car is to drive it. That's it. It's not it, about it. Even has a with, manual transmission. Yeah, it even has a manual transmission. It's not about connecting with the outside world. It's actually about connecting with this incredible machine that is fully, fully dependent upon you to execute properly on it. And and we don't we you know when you think about self driving cars and all those sensors and everything that I'm a fan of. This is not that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's really cool. I love that. 
you know, the funny thing about the F1, um, when they were originally planning it, you know, today, I mean, you know, it's this iconic machine that, you know, everybody wants, you know, they, they go at auction. I think the last one that sold at auction went for something like $18 million. <laughs> and, you know, the, the F1 was one of the first road cars to be priced at a million dollars. And the original plan was for a production run of 300 cars. It sold so poorly, even after it won overall at the 1995 24 Hours of Le Mans, they could not sell those things. People didn't understand, you know, it's like, why would I want this? You know, nobody wanted them. And so they actually cut production short after only 106 cars, of which about 25 of them were race cars. You know, so there was only about uh, 75, uh, fewer than 80 road cars, F1 road cars, which, you know, when you think about that today is mind boggling that, you know, people, you know, wealthy people, you know, almost fight over the opportunity to buy, you know, limited production Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, and Bugattis and McLaren couldn't, you know, a, a McLaren, a brand that had won so many F1 championships and so many races, you know, could not sell 300 cars, 300 In 1995, it was a very, very different world. It, it was, mm-hmm. you know, the tech world hadn't, was only, ju- you know, internet, right? It was, uh, I mean, it was only just starting. And, you know, that's, I mean, the, so I was thinking about, you know, having grown up in an area that's pretty, very fortunate, pretty wealthy. Um, I remember when my neighbor down the street, he, uh, he created a product that we all use every day and he sold it uh, for tens of millions of dollars. He didn't move, which was always amazing to me. Um, but they had one of the first VCRs and, and they also had a Sony Betamax and this was in the eighties. <laughs> and, you know, I remember, and, the, and they had a collection of cars. It's why I could identify the exhaust note of a Ferrari by the time I was 12 years old, because we lived on a cul-de-sac and they lived at the end and they would go back and forth with these exotics that were unbelievable. And I would lay in my bed because they would sometimes leave early in the morning. I'd lay in my bed or be in my bedroom overlook this the our road and i'd be like okay which one is that and then i'd be able to look outside and identify them <laughs> but you know it was the the i mean the idea you know when you think back of of wealthy people back then it was a different world they didn't you know the fact that this that these people they spent so much of their money on cars was seen as um as almost lowbrow you know, like, why didn't they invest in a yacht or, you know, three or four homes? Like that was, you know, not to say that people didn't have exotics, but, you know, it's just kind of, it's just sort of funny. The, the mentality I think was different then. And, and now the, you know, the, some of the, some of the people that have famous car collections, you know, Jay Leno and, you know, the tech people out in, in Seattle that go to exotics at Redmond town center every week, which is the largest collection weekly collection of cars and coffee for exotics in, in the, in the country. And we, we think that's probably the world. Uh, it's, you know, it's a different mentality. Those guys are all now in their 40, they're in their fifties, sixties, 70s that's you know the, the guys that started something like that are in their late 50s and 30 40 years ago you know 30 years ago they didn't have money to spend on these kinds of cars so i think it's you know it's just the market is different is different now yeah well hope, hopefully uh mr murray will be able to sell all 
100 of these T50s. I, I don't think you'll have any problem selling them this time. I don't think he will either. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, why don't we wrap it up uh, for this week? And, All right. Uh, Sounds good. Yeah. I don't think we need to talk about Maserati Trofeo. There's not really much to say there. Maserati's uh, got V8s engines. That's it. That's yeah. what I took away. Yeah. V8 <laughs> engines in the Ghibli. Okay. In the Ghibli. Yeah, that's yes. it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Rebecca. We'll Thank you, you Sam. Time. Bye. Bye. Bye.